Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Michael earlier today, he was going to have to carry most of the ball today because oil and gas is just kind of boring. Tapping the strategic reserve had no effect. Most people in the business think that it just isn't going to make any difference. The OPEC Plus group is meeting tomorrow. Uh, They don't like tapping strategic reserves, so they will probably not do their scheduled increase of 400,000 barrels a day for January, I guess they'd be doing at this point. J.P. Morgan came out with a report from their London Commodities Research arm that says that uh, oil could trade as high as 125 in 2022. Their logic is that the extra capacity in OPEC Plus isn't four, four and a half million barrels. It's really down under two. You know, I, I suspect they're probably right. On the other hand, the new variant and possibility of more lockdowns, not, not you know, all over the world, in Asia and Europe as well as here, you know, it is definitely going to cause oil to trade somewhat lower. Uh, the thing to watch is the, is the 2023 price and the 2024 price. The near months, you'll be very volatile uh, based on news on the virus and news on OPEC plus and of course the uh, Biden administration wants in the worst way to not have to run in the midterms next November with gasoline being $4 or something in lots of places, but they may not be able to avoid it. On natural gas, once again, the near month is all over the place. There, I don't think the virus news has much of an impact, but weather does. And uh, all you need is three or four warm days. And remember, uh, most of us, or me anyway, not Michael, but me and Diane are in the Northeast. So we're having, you know, pretty good cold weather. But on natural gas, it's it's the whole country uh, and how they're faring in terms of piling up in degree days. So extent it gets a little warm in Chicago or Texas or the Southeast or whatnot, it can have a negative impact on the near months trading. When you go out to 23 and 24, it looks as though natural gas is repriced around three and a quarter, 350. That will be up about 75 cents. Uh, That means the natural gas companies will have a great deal more cash flow. It is true that from a supply point of view, natural gas supply is up about four Bs a day, which is not really anticipated. There was a good piece of research I read this morning. It said about half of that was Hainesville, and then the rest was spread between uh, associated gas out of the Permian and and the Marcellus. LNG continues to be very volatile in China and the rest of Asia and in Europe. Certainly, LNG demand is going to be higher next year 
Chenier, Sabine Pass has just brought another train on. I believe another train is coming on at the Chenier Corpus Project. Uh, Venture Global, which is uh, in the Louisiana side, is going to start up next year. So your LNG man, which is round 11 out of, say, 90 or so demand, it, it's going to go to 12 or 12 and a half or 13. So, you know, that's all good. In terms of impact from a macro point of view, clearly now that Jerome Powell has been renominated, he now has the flexibility to uh, start to taper quicker. Uh, remember, up until recently, in, in order to get us through COVID, they've been buying a lot of bonds each month. They will phase that down, and then they'll go for a period of time where they're only buying bonds to replace the ones that mature, and then eventually they'll try to take the Fed balance sheet, which is like $8.5 trillion now, down to a much lower number. But in essence, and sent testimony yesterday about the term transitory. He he said, let's not use that term. Let's talk about inflation. You know, I think that we have clearly overstimulated the economy. Too much money put in the economy to try to rescue us from uh, COVID. The infrastructure fund is more money in the economy to build back better, which probably won't happen until January and may not happen, certainly won't happen based on the bill passed by the House. So next year, fiscal stimulus will be coming down, overdue. You probably have seen or read about Morgan Stanley's call for the stock market next year, 22, they're saying down, you know, five to 10%. Their logic there is not just that interest rates are going up, not just that liquidity is gonna be less. They just think that, you know, that the market is too high. I sent Michael yesterday a report which really appeals to me, and it goes through the logic of where people have stored their money. It's it's really neat reading because if you go back long enough, people stored their money in in German bonds, which paid Deutschmark. And uh, in fact, for a like a fifteen year period, uh, that investment made more money than investing in the S&P 500. But then, of course, uh, the French uh, and the German organized the Eurozone. And and then when Draghi was head of the European Central Bank, remember, he, he famously said, whatever it takes. So when he was faced with Greece going bankrupt and Italy going bankrupt and Portugal going bankrupt and Spain going bankrupt. So the, the logic of this article is that people could no longer put money into German bonds that now paid euro, euro, euro dollars rather than Deutschmarks. The European Central Bank was, you know, not run by the Germans anymore. They were run by Draghi to try to hold the European Union together. The thesis here is that the money came into the U.S. stock market. And <clears throat> if that's true or partly true or something like that is going on, that would make sense the Morgan Stanley call about the stock market being down five or 10% next year. Michael and I talked earlier. We both feel that that it, with, with this set of circumstances, that the best thing to do is to 
have some part of your investment portfolio, let's say you own 10 stocks, have some part of it, you know, like five of the 10 or six of the 10 or something, be companies that increase their dividend every year. What that indicates is that they have free cash flow and they can do that and still preserve their market position. That means you can't own Amazon, you can't own, uh, can't own uh, Alphabet, I can't own CarMax, to mention three companies I do own. I'm not really a fan of doing that. Uh, it, it, it has worked for Apple, it has worked for Microsoft, and I mean, the theory about paying dividends is it's tax inefficient, and if you have high returns in the business you're in, you know, why pay it out in dividends as compared to invest? You know, I, I'm a big fan of taking maybe a third of your cash flow and paying dividends and having the balance sheet and the flexibility to increase that dividend 7 or 8% a year, even when you have a cyclical business downturn. And with that, Michael's going to give you his take on, uh, on those sentiments. Hi, Hunt. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously this week is, is we're seeing a lot of volatility in the markets. We spoke last week a little bit about SaaS valuations and how technology shares in general and anything that's high growth is going to be more affected by these changes in interest rates. You could take this report that, you're, that you referenced and easily tell the story that, uh, that so that's where this influx capital has gone and why the U.S. equity markets have increased so much. It clearly correlates with uh, the increase in SaaS valuations that we've, we've talked about over the past few weeks. Um, interestingly, this correlation with, with interest rates has only come into view in the last, uh, this last 12 months or so. I want to bring up something that's sort of unique among these high growth companies, there's kind of two pools. There's the ones we've talked about that are burning cash and some of them are cash flow positive. And if a company is burning cash still and hasn't flipped to cash flow positive, it's probably going to be more affected by these changes in interest rates. Flip side is the ones that are cash flow positive and growing at a high rate are probably relatively resistant to inflationary pressures because at some point the growth rate exceeds the impact of inflation. I'll include a little bit more on that topic in particular, uh, but the, the point is, is that we spent a lot of time on this call in the course of the last couple of months talking about SaaS companies, and it's probably going to be the case that it's going to continue to be more volatile. So let's pull up on the thread of inflation on SaaS in particular, because a lot of the SaaS businesses tend to be impacted by IT budgets. So if we're going to think about what's going to happen to inflation, we want to understand what's going to happen to IT budgets. If we assume rising inflationary environment, IT budgets do get squeezed. This is kind of an important piece of information to keep in mind in deciding if one of these SaaS companies does make it into your portfolio, or big tech companies for that matter, is the product that they have so core to the business that they're not going to stop paying for it, or is it a nice to have? And I guess that's the uh, that's the rub when it comes to the SaaS companies. A good question is, uh, which we haven't talked about this in a bit. Why 
wouldn't Amazon uh, with Amazon Web Services or Microsoft with Azure or, for that matter, Google with its Google Cloud, why wouldn't it try to provide these kind of services along with access to the cloud, contracts to use, you know, basically the cloud, and, and Michael explained this in more detail, but the cloud is using other people's servers rather than your own is the way I think about it. And so once Amazon gets you know, American Airlines or whomever to put all their database up on the Amazon Web Services, why shouldn't American Airlines or whoever the user is actually rely on Amazon for the programming? And with that, apparently, that just doesn't work. I don't understand why, but that has created a niche for Snowflake and back over to Mike. Great. Yeah, actually, that kind of tees up two things that we can talk about then today. Snowflake's earnings actually are released today at the end of this call. So that will be an interesting one to see. The the concept of why Microsoft and Amazon don't move into particularly Snowflake's business is is an important one to consider because they, in some ways, they do, right? That they offer data warehousing. It's just that Snowflake's data warehouse is better in a lot of ways for a lot of customers. And the same thing goes for Microsoft. Microsoft offers products for data warehousing. They're not necessarily competitive because of the particular thing that they do. So in a sense, Microsoft and Amazon could both build copy products of, of those businesses, but they'll never be as well ingrained in their customer's use case as a specialist company like like a snowflake. So the same thing goes for probably one of the earliest cloud-based companies, Salesforce, who reported earnings yesterday. Salesforce started out with a uh, cloud-based CRM, customer relationship management system. And since then, they've expanded into a number of different business lines. And when we think about different software businesses that are so integral to the operations of the business that they have this essentially a moat and a very low likelihood of ever being pulled out of a business. Salesforce is one of them. One of the largest SaaS businesses, probably the largest SaaS business, market cap of $247 billion, with its hands in every single industry vertical as far as uh, you can see. They recently acquired a company called Slack, a messaging platform, that integration seems to be going well. They had one disappointment with in their earnings, so they made very clear with another company they had acquired. They had to reorganize the sales team, and sales growth wasn't quite where they wanted it. Aside from that, it was a very good quarter. And one of the things I like about Salesforce versus a larger tech company like Microsoft or Google or an Amazon is Salesforce is small enough still that they're going to be able to do more acquisition. So it's more likely where Amazon might try to build some of the features that Snowflake can do. It's more likely that Salesforce could acquire a Snowflake competitor and provide a competing product. One, one of my questions would be going back to inflation, inflation impact on these software services businesses, whether it be Snowflake or Salesforce or the verticals that Mike has been discussing the last few Wednesdays, 
where you have a business set up to to do construction engineering or or running restaurants. And you'll remember, or a lot of you will remember, uh, one of the things we glommed onto, I guess I glommed onto, is internet security. Uh, that would be CrowdStrike and Thermal One. And I think one of the issues with inflation with these businesses is, is the time when the revenue coming in, the, the cash flow coming in from sales revenues starts to more than cover the cash cost of marketing, the cash cost of R&D, you know, writing more software, specialized software. Will someone, could be Snowflake, could be Salesforce, could be others, say that one of the things that's causing some delay in getting to that period where you're generating significant free cash flow, uh, does inflation have an impact on it? I mean, inflation is kind of a a neat excuse for for management running private and public companies. Michael knows a lot more about this, but what I suspect is that whether it's Salesforce or Snowflake or Sentinel One and CrowdStrike or some of the verticals that Mike's led us through, that some part of that marketing expense and R&D expense is part of the cost of doing business. So that where people start to evaluate these companies' times revenue, Lord saying it's, it, it's growing so quickly that we're going to value it times revenue, but where the cost of building that revenue doesn't really decline as a percentage of the revenue, query, what have you got? I mean, a lot more money's coming in the door, but the same amount of money's going out the door for marketing and, and research. So is that really a business? Now, I don't want to be negative about this because Salesforce has been a fantastic investment. Snowflake, you know, came public with uh, Berkshire Hathaway owning part of it at the IPO price and whatnot. I've, I've talked to venture capital guys who say the guy running Snowflake is the best manager out there. By the way, I think the guy running Snowflake is a sailor. At least he was a sailor before he went back to work to run uh, Snowflake. So that that is where I am a little concerned about the impact of inflation on these businesses. And now I hope Mike will explain why Hunt's being way too conservative on that. And because uh, <laughs> I... I, it's a suspicion I have. It's not a, a worked-out thesis. It's just a suspicion. Okay, so the, those are really good questions. Let me try to unpack that piece by piece. I'll start with my perspective on inflation impact on those three areas that you talked about. So companies like Snowflake that are, I think Snowflake was on a adjusted basis cash flow positive last quarter. I don't know where this quarter will land, but they they seem to be close to turning cash flow positive. I think anyone that is not cash flow positive is probably going to be more affected by inflation than ones that aren't. I think the verticals in general tend to be cash flow positive and maybe will be better insulated. The assumption there is that their product is and necessary and an inflationary environment doesn't cause their customers to reduce the consumption of their product. 
internet security is probably the one of that group that Hunt mentioned that I am probably most bearish on because even though we all know that internet security is important, as budgets get squeezed, the things that don't have a clear and present return on investment are the ones that end up getting minimized. And for better or worse, internet security tends to fall into that category. Now, on the cost side of the business, the marketing and R&D expense, like Hunt said, is going to be the number one impacted expense area. So what you'll want to see is that percentage of revenue. It should, with the high-growth company, that the percentage of revenue that is attributed to marketing and R&D should go down over time or stay steady. So there's... So one, you may see that flip in certain companies that are either struggling to retain employees or having to grow and it's costing them a lot more to add new heads. The second place you might see that is in the gross margin adjusted payback period. And what that is, is how much additional sales in a given quarter, how long it takes for that, those customers to stick around because they're SaaS customers they pay every month. How long do they have to stick around in months? On average of the, the group that I look at, it's, it's around 15 months, and that's pretty normal. I think if you start seeing that closer to 20 months and you see that number ticking up, that's a relatively negative sign. The final thing that Hunt mentioned that's really important is what happens to these guys from a sales perspective. And I think that that is going to be twofold. Back to what I said earlier, if it's a core essential product, people will continue to use it. Two, if it has a clear ROI, it will remain a priority within the business. So all of these SaaS businesses, especially B2B SaaS businesses, a strong sales team is going to go in with a very good understanding of the way their customer operates and the way their product produces a strong ROI. And most of them, especially if you're dealing with a Fortune 500 company, they will require you to show them how that goes through. And that will be part of the engagement for the project. So I, again, for the good ones, this won't be a problem. For non-core or not clear ROI type products, it may be uh, a lot more difficult. Just with the remaining couple of minutes, Please, if you own Amazon, CarMax, or Alphabet, which don't pay dividends, please don't sell them. I understand the logic of not paying dividends because you think you can the money can be re- reinvested at a high rate of return. Also, dividends are kind of tax inefficient. The company pays the uh, pays the dividend with dollars that have already been taxed, and then there's another tax on it. Uh, our tax code is needs lots of work. I'm hoping that that when we get to the midterms in November 22, the speaker's gavel in the House will go over to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and I think then, with the Republicans in control of the House and possibly the Senate, or maybe, you know, 50-50 in the Senate or something like the current situation, there might be some opportunity to go at the tax code on a case-by-case basis. One thing that has been done 
in the UK, not recently, this is from a while ago, is <laughs> it costs that much money, would be to have, if you receive a dividend from a company that's paid tax, you get a tax credit against your individual taxes uh, on, on the portion of the dividend where taxes have already been paid. If you think about it, it's not going to hurt the revenue coming to the federal government that much because a lot of the owners of uh, uh, U.S. equities, public equities, aren't, aren't taxed anyway. They're pension funds and endowments and foundations and whatnot. So it'd just be the individual owners who, if a full or something approaching a full tax rate had been paid, and then the dividend would come out on your individual tax return, it wouldn't be that hard to do. They just send you a note at the end of the year and tell you how much of your dividend you could report without paying any tax on it. It'd be much more logical to prove our financial markets. And the reason I talk about the House moving over, I think, I think the political situation is so partisan now, uh, it kind of doesn't matter who's president. If we could somehow get more collaboration between the parties and try to address things that need to be changed, that'd be great. As an investor, don't count on that happening. I've been arguing with my colleagues. Some of the companies we own interest in don't pay dividends. I've been arguing with my colleagues to get that changed. Well, I'm, I'm kind of losing the argument. So I'm looking for any, any particular uh, bit of logic that I can uh, get, get, uh, you know, get these companies to pay dividends. And with that, everyone stay healthy and be well. joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.